greetings, everyone. This is a Sal Belt Option Show with Richard Talk to Me Guy. And Sherry Edwards is off building the portal. I know I say it every week, but it's really the portal's getting bigger and bigger. Soundhealthportal.com. More features, more amazing amounts of data just by recording a 45-second, actually two 45-second recordings of your voice. And we can do it all online now. You can go to soundhealthportal.com and look at services and then look at campaigns. And there is some free programs that you can run your voice through. I think currently one of them might be PTSD and neuroplasticity. There are others, but I can't remember what they are now. Where you can go directly online, for those of us that have been doing it long enough that you used to have to lug a computer around, you can just do it all through a web browser now and record a 45-second recording or two and submit that with a free account and get a report on one of the campaigns within 2 to 12 hours with more data than you can imagine. It's really wonderful. The amount of information in there and available by doing that is really extraordinary. I'm really happy about the sound portal, sound health portal. And that being said, I will say, and I, know, I, I say this very thing every week, this is one of those shows with John David Mann talking about the latte factor, why you don't have to be rich to live rich. This is going to be a show you're going to want to re-listen to because it's just such a, a lot of really doable information in this really great book uh, told in a format that's really approachable and you don't have to pull out a spreadsheet. So to listen to this show about 30 minutes after it, I hit end, you'll be able to go to soundhealthoptions.com, click on the radio tab, then click on Sound Health Radio, and the replay link will be there with all the show notes and the links to John's site, as well as you can go to iTunes or Pocket Cast or Dogcatcher or any of the podcast app and find the replay there by searching in any of those for Sherry Edwards, and you'll find the over 679 hours of shows, something like that, at those locations. It's going to be good. I've read the book. I've talked to John before. The last time we uh, I interviewed John, it was about the book, The Recipe, about the chef that took a young man under his chef's apron and helped him really learn an amazing skill and give him great foundation for life. There's actually, to me, similarities between these two stories in a certain way. John David Mann rose to international prominence with his award-winning parable, The Go-Giver, co-authored with Bob Berg, which has sold over a million copies in two dozen languages. The Go-Giver has been hailed as one of the most important parables about business and life of our time by Adam Grant, author of Give and Take. Also praised by the likes of Ariana Huffington, Seth Godin, and Glenn Beck. The Latte Factor is his 30th book. John never planned to go into business. It just seemed to keep working out that way. He's founded one school, one food distribution business, one graphic design business, and two publishing companies. John's diverse career has made him a thought leader in several different industries. In 1986, he founded and wrote for Solstice, a journal on health, nutrition, and environmental issues. His series on the climate crisis, yes, he was writing about this back in the 80s, was selected for national reprint in the Utney Reader. His books are published in 35 languages and sold more than 3 million copies. John joins us to discuss the latte factor, why you don't have to be rich to live rich. Welcome, John. Thank you, Richard. Great to be here. I'm going to start at a place, a slightly different place, because this occurred to me as I was reading the book and I was reviewing the materials. 
A, I have to say, is there a master's award, a writer's award for the master of parable? Because really, you do it so well, which led, <laughs> which led, which led me to thinking, do you feel that your early years in composing and performing classical music affects the way you write? In music, particularly classical music, it has a flow. It has an overture. It has an early stage, a mid-stage, kind of like a five-act play. It tells a, a bioacoustic story. And you seem to have carried that over into, your, at least from my view, into how you write, how you write parable. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's an awesome question. Um, an interesting observation because uh, actually... <laughs> Yeah, it's a few different questions. I'll try to answer them all at the same time. Um, yes, there must be an award, an award for parabolic writing. I don't know if I, but um, yeah, the composer thing is is a very real thing. I, I you know, as a kid, I was I played the cello, I concertized in the cello, and that was kind of my career as a composer, and that was what I was gonna do with my life. I was gonna be a composer. Um, I, I keep saying. I'm going to be this. And then, you know, I discover a left turn take, but at that point in my teens and, and almost into my twenties, um, you know, my life was all about composing music. I love music. I think in music when I'm not, you know, doing anything else, there's music going in my head when I'm writing books or, or anything, when I'm writing email for that matter, I've got music going on my laptop filtering through my ears. Um, so, you know, music is kind of my first love. And yeah, I think that sort of the way music is structured, uh, the way you the way you structure the the story in sound, I, I think has a huge impact on on my writing. There's this there's this thing composers called cyclic um, you know cyclic composition where a theme that might be there at the beginning of a piece returns sort of triumphantly perhaps mm -hmm. at the end. And I, I've always really dug how composers will take a, a, a theme or a motif in music and, and uh, evolve it or fragment it or distort it or change it or alter it and, and present it back in all kinds of different forms. And yeah, I, it's, I'm a, a sort of acutely aware of how the, how the piece plays in terms of, in terms of writing a book. And I think that's, I think it's really important. I think every book is fundamentally, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, is a story, you know, it, it's, it's a journey that you go on. And as the writer, you've got to be kind of aware of the shape of the whole journey. So, so short answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that about, I've listened to uh, a lot of jazz, even as a younger person uh, and particularly in my early career in uh, chefing, I listened to mm -hmm. a lot of jazz because we had a jazz band and, and the Monterey jazz festival, I was cooking in Monterey. <sighs> And the Monterey wow. Jazz Festival, and we used to have the, we because we had a sound stage in the restaurant, a small stage. They would come to the jazz to the restaurant afterwards to jam, and I always loved it to listen to jazz musicians where they'd get a riff. It might just be the bass player. It might you know somebody in the on the team would lay down a line of some kind, and they'd go all over the place, and then they'd come back to that. It would reappear within the music, and it always blew my mind. To have that riff return, I love that about jazz. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's the thing of you know of dynamics and of of there's the melodic thing of contrasting something that moves up and something that moves down. And often you have one instrument going up and another instrument uh, 
you're countering it or balancing it by, by taking a step downward or moving stepwise versus moving cordially. Or there's all these different sort of uh, uh, dynamics to movement, aspects of movement that in, in sound and in composition, that that's what you're dealing with because there's no, it's, it's not words. There's no literal meaning to a melody. There's just the, the sound of it. In writing words, you got this literal meaning of the words, but you can't let that fool you into thinking that the literal meaning of the words is, is all there is because there's also the, there's also the sound and the flow and the dynamics and the storiness of it. You know, movie making is a great sort of midpoint between music and, and writing because you've got the dialogue is being said, but you've got a whole lot more going on. And for a while, and I think you know this, for a while I was, you know, my plan was to be a screenwriter. That was my, that was my intention. Another one of those great plans I made. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, there's a, there's some of the composer in me for sure. And there's also some of the screenwriter uh, whenever I'm just writing a book as well. Well, and you use that, I, I didn't mean to go off on this, but I can't help it. Uh, one of the things that I think is really interesting is back to the melodic part of the words is because I've worked with Sherry for so many years and what she's doing is taking vocal recordings Hmm. breaks them in, you know, so you take a 45 second recording of me talking about something and then she runs it through the software and it breaks it apart and it looks at really the various parts of the vocal print, meaning the actual how it, you know, it breaks eventually into, you take it from the waveform and you put it into a, you take that and you turn it into a chart that shows the highs and the lows and those hmm. indicate, those frequencies indicate imbalances or balances that within your structure of voice depending upon what you're looking at. So that's why I specifically, when I said you're do the bioacoustics of your stories, because there's a flow to how the stories go. You, particularly in this book, finances, not unlike many people, is not my favorite thing to talk about. And yet you drew <laughs> me in. You drew me in completely. I was in the flow of the story and I was like, I can't stop reading. I have to read this because it, it flows so well. And, and I think there is a certain bioacoustic quality to that. And that's what brought me to think about you as a musician because there is a flow to how you write. Um, and it's really That's interesting. Really yeah. You know, I, I think, just hearing you talk about this, I think that the thing that I'm, uh, let's see. I think where I show up best, or the thing that I, I may be best suited to do, or where I'm, I'm, you know, where I where I feel like I'm flying, is when I'm writing about something I don't know very much about. And I first noticed that, you know, for years I was writing about stuff I, you know, I knew something about for leadership and sales and business and blah, which I had some experience in. I'm not a great experience, but not a ton, but some. But then I, I started writing these books with Brandon Webb, Navy SEAL buddy. I know nothing about the military. So writing his memoir, The Red Circle, I'm writing about the training of a Navy SEAL sniper. Oh, good God. I, I, I couldn't be further from a Navy SEAL sniper. So in order to write about the military and this very specific branch in the military, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it, it was just like writing this book and saying finance is not my topic. It doesn't interest me. I don't know much about it. It's not my background. <laughs> um, so I, I kind of have to fall in love with it to mm -hmm. turn it into a story. And I think that, that, that what's cool about that is falling in, you know, starting to learn the language, learn the concepts, learn the meaning of, of an unfamiliar field. 
and finding a way to fall in love with it. I, I think that I get to walk this path that the reader's going to walk uh, when when they read it, uh, as opposed to somebody who already knows all about finances and doesn't really need a book. So, yeah, I think that that's there's something about that that discovery process. And, and uh, that's that's I hope I'm always writing books about things I, I, I don't know about or that I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now that we've gone out, way out there, <laughs> I'm going to bring us back because we could have a whole well, that could be a whole other show. Yeah, um, what are we talking about here? What are we talking right, about? What here? are we talking about here? I have to ask about this amazing journey of you and David Bach finally writing this book. Yeah. So talk about that just a bit uh, before we get into sure. uh, some other questions and introducing the characters. I mean, it really has been another journey of you really like to stew on things in a certain. <laughs> I don't know if it's I don't know if it's karma or it's just a thing or timing has to be perfect for you. I don't know. It's an amazing thing. But talk about that journey with you and David Bach to get here. Yes, Richard is finding a really nice way to say you're slow, dude. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it, it cer- certainly was a journey. So as you said, um, finances is you know, not, not my first interest. Um, uh, and so I was working for a journal, a business journal many, many years ago. It's before I'd written any books. And I, um, I had to do an interview with this guy, David Bach. And that was my assignment. So I didn't know much about him. I didn't know much about his stuff. I had not read his books, but I knew that he, he had written a series of very, very popular finance books. So this is back in the like, late 1990s, I guess. So at this point, David Bach is a rock star. He published a book called Smart Women, Finish Rich. And then his, I think his next book was The Automatic Millionaire, which he premiered live on the Oprah show on January 1st. I think it was 1996. Wow. Yeah. I mean, talk about a, talk about a hot platform to premiere a book. And, you know, the audience went crazy and Oprah loved it. And he was a celebrity and his book sold millions of copies. And so David's like this Elvis of the publishing world. And I'm like this, like the janitor. I'm nobody. Nobody's ever heard of me. <laughs> so I, I uh, went to interview him. And I, I kind of thought it's going to be you know, about savings and 401k plans and blah, blah, blah. And it was so much more. I talked to him for an hour. And I loved the stuff he said. Um, he had a passion about helping people find their true path. A uh, passion about helping people. At the end of our conversation, he said, John says, my belief is that every one of us was put on this earth to do something unique, something that no other soul can do. And the great tragedy of it is that most of, our, most of us aren't doing it because we're too busy leasing and loaning our lives, chasing at the end of the month to make ends meet. He said, my mission is to, is to help set millions of people free to own their lives so they can do what they were put here to do. I thought, Damn. I, I can mm. subscribe to that. Um, and so I, I really liked the guy and we kind of connected. A couple of years later, I wrote The Goal-Giver with Bob Burke. This is 2007. We're writing it now or 2006. We're writing it. Came out at the end of 2007. And Bob and I both went to all of our, you know, whatever authors we knew or had connections to to look for endorsements. David gave this beautiful endorsement that ended up on the front cover of the book. Um, 
And it was just, I, I think it played a big part in, in helping us kind of get our initial splash in the marketplace. So again, here we are, like Elvis, I'm like nobody. And later that year, uh, he saw how well the Gold Giver was doing. And he came back to me and said, you know, I'd like, I've written books that have sold millions of copies. So like 10 million, 20 million people have read my stuff, but there's a hundred million, 200 million that are never going to pick up a finance book. There's so many people out there who, who need help, but never going to read my books. I just know it. I want to write a book like the Go-Giver, a book like your book that, that is based on my principle tells a story, a book that anybody can read, um, you know, that that's, it's, you can pick up and read it in, in an evening. So I said, cool. And uh, that was middle of 2008. Our agent started talking, publishers, his publisher was very squeamish about this. He said, I don't know. Uh, they were not excited about doing a parable. They thought parables didn't work, which is ridiculous. And then the, the economy melted down, as we all may recall. Late 2008, Lehman Brothers went up, the banks started going crazy, and the economy exploded or imploded. And uh, suddenly David had a whole bunch of other stuff to write about, and we just lost, wandered off the path. The book just didn't happen. His publisher didn't want to do it. He was busy. I got busy. And then yeah, the years went by and I had this story, Richard. I mean, I'd started writing this. I had the scene of this woman looking out, looking in the window of this shop at this. It was a painting originally and kind of had it going. And it was like the beginning of a melody. And it was in my head. And it was like driving me nuts because I had it for 10 years. In my head. <laughs> I, want <laughs> story. I want to read this story. I want to write it so, so I can read it. And uh, what finally happened was he... Um, got re-inspired about the book sitting down with Paolo Coelho who's the author of The mm -hmm. Alchemist and he, uh, he I guess Paolo had written a book that David helped him to promote in the US and so they got they had a, a chance to spend an evening together over dinner and Paolo said David what are you doing these days and David said I love you man no he didn't say that <laughs> they hadn't drunk that much um, he said well you know I've doing this and that, but I got this book. I really w wish I'd, I'd write. I'd really want to write. It's kind of like your books story. And Paolo said, David, then you must do it. And you know how it is when you hear something that other people have told you or that you've heard before, but for some reason, when this person tells you in this situation, you, you can hear it. And that's what it was. He's, he's like, ah, he got home and said, man, I got to do this. So he, emailed me and said, you're still interested? And of course I was. And so it, it took us until this year, 2019. We first talked about it in the beginning of 2008. And after over a decade, here it is. He said, if my publisher won't screw him, I'm going to get a new publisher. And he did. Mm -hmm. Wow. Here we are. Wow. Yep. That's wonderful. And one of the phrases that um, David uses and before we talk about the characters, this really powerful thing about leasing and loaning their life. Hmm. What, what is that? That got me hooked. All right. I yeah. kind of get it, you know, but I, it's one of those things where I kind of get, but I don't want to look at it too much because I'm going to think about it. And then if I think about mm -hmm. it, I'm going to go, oh, my God. So true. But what is that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of like. It's almost like the question, where are you investing your life? 
uh, where, where and, and by your life, let's make that less esoteric and grand and say your hours, your moments. You know, in, in a given 24-hour day, you take some out for sleeping, where are you investing those 10, 12 hours that you, the productive hours, active hours? Um, and if you're investing it, and this kind of goes, you know, honestly, this starts to lead us right into the, into the core thesis of the book. So I guess, I guess that's kind of where we're going. Um, you know, the idea is, are you uh, taking, taking all your, your work effort, your, your production effort into building somebody else's business to work for somebody where you're kind of building their business or building their enterprise? Or are you pouring some of your investment into building something that your life is all about? You know, what, what is it that you want to be experiencing in your life? What is it that you want to be doing, creating, living uh, uh, in your life? And are you able to, have you designed your life so you can pour at least a piece of every day into building that? I think that's, that's kind of another way of saying that question. And, you know, the model that, we've, that has been so uh, commonly accepted in past generations and past times is that you spend the bulk of your productive life uh, building possibly a nest egg of retirement. And what that really means is you're pouring life into building some other business, your employer, until you've earned the right at the age of 65 or 64 or 70 or whenever to say, okay, I have built a nest egg and now... I will do the thing that I want to do. <laughs> and that, that has not proved effective for a variety of reasons for most people. Boy, howdy. I grew up in a family where my parents had that thing, yeah. that, exact, that exact dynamic of we'll save, and then when we get to the point of where we've saved, we'll then go do. So yes. that when my mother retired, because my mother had always worked as, an, as a CPA, as an accountant, and my father was in the real estate business. And so they'd always worked. And then when they both kind of retired, he never actually retired, but she retired. And then was like, okay, let's go places. Let's do, you know. And then by then there were physical issues and they couldn't. So they could so have been. Calm. I mean, you know, so it, it really hit home for me thinking about I'm someone who's always worked. That was yes. my belief that if you work, not so much the work hard, although, I mean, I was a chef for 20 years, so I understand working hard. It's gnarly. Yes. Yep. Um, that somehow if I worked, I, I've always, if all else fails, even to the sacrifice of relationships sometimes, I will work. I enjoy mm -hmm. working. I feel, you know, like doing this, some people would call work, but I really enjoy this. I enjoy the conversation with thought leaders such as yourself. I really, I, and you know, this, this gives me juice for my life. Yes. It doesn't particularly pay well, but I really like doing it. Well, uh, yeah. And so that's, yeah. I mean, we have expressions in the world, things like, you know, if you do what you love, then you, if you do what you love, then you'll never quote work a day in your life. And that's uh -huh. the beautiful thought. Uh, you know, it's, it's similar to the idea of do what you love and the money will follow the title of a book by Barbara Sheriff. It's a mm -hmm. sentiment that many of us sort of in the baby boom generation and have, have come to, to live by and love. And it's sort of true, but not completely. Uh, sometimes when you do it, you love money doesn't follow. Not at all. 
And uh, it's fine to say, do, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. But what can also happen is you can be working really, really hard at something you love, but don't have that financial struggle going on. And I, I think that what, and that's certainly been, been true for me. I mean, people look at, at me and say, oh, best-selling author. So God, he must have it made. Yeah, he must be <laughs> rolling in the millions. Because people equate best-selling author with financial largesse. Well, you know, there's Stephen King bestseller author. And then there's people like me. <laughs> I've written three books, you know, of those 30, maybe four or five are financially successful. Now, I think they're all successful as books. I love them all. I have devoted readers in all of them. So they all made their mark and made their difference in the world. And I treasure them all. And I'm proud of them all. And I love them all. But most of them, have never turned to profit because they've never generated an income stream past the initial advance. So they are basically, you know, when the book writing is over, it's over. I don't get a penny left. And there's that handful like the Go-Giver and the Go-Giver books and some of the Brandon Webb books and now this book. There's a handful that generated an income stream that supports me. But, but, but it's not, you know, the life of a writer is, is not typically, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Lucrative. Lucrative. Um, so <laughs> I struggled all my life financially. And so I think what David is going at in this book and in all his work, but we go at it in this book, is let's find a model where we can be experiencing that thing we want in retirement, be experiencing it now, at least to some extent, at least in pieces. Let's find a way to integrate the love of our life, the things that matter in our lives, the things that would really truly make us spread our wings and feel like we're really being us. Find a way to integrate those into our practice, into our lives now, at least in pieces, rather than put it off till the age of, of 60 when we, you know, hey, most people don't retire anymore anyway. It's kind of an obsolete concept. Most people find they can't retire because the economic model that they've built around themselves doesn't allow them to. So this is a different economic model. And I suppose we should talk about that. <laughs> well, and... And there is the thing I, I will toss out. There, there's Howard Stern in radio, and then there's everybody mm. else, right? So it's, right. So it's not dissimilar. Where, you know, I mean, I can't. Well, I'm certain right. Howard had a period of struggle, but I mean, once he tapped into satellite radio, he's making a squillion a year. And I'm not saying he hasn't right. worked hard to get there. However, there, there's very much. As you say, there are authors, there's Stephen King, and then there's everybody else. And that's how I feel about Howard Stern. So it's very much, I, I do get great bliss out of what I do, but it isn't necessarily yes. setting me up for fat retirement. Um, not that even I have just, any or, or even just security. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, security. Oh, you want security. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I never cared much about that concept myself. So I had to get, yeah, but go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, I was just going to say, yeah, security. Yeah. I yeah I don't even know what that is. It's, it doesn't even ever occur to me. Like oh I feel secure now. No, every day is sort but, of know, a dance. That's a, that's a funny that's a funny thing though. You know it, it's really true that I have when I'm honest about it. And my wife and I have talked about this. Um, you know security matters tremendously to her. She you know one of the things that motivates her is that she doesn't want to end up uh, in seventies which you know, for us is only the next decade, we're in our 60s. She doesn't want to end up in her 70s when she no longer has really the ener- quite the energy to do things that you could do now and, and be struggling. Security means everything to her. It's never meant that much to me. It's never pushed my buttons. What's always pushed my buttons is freedom. I've never wanted to end up in a situation where I had to write books I didn't want to book or I didn't want to write or I had to show up at this job that I didn't really like or 
I've freedom has always been a lot to me. But everyone has like different hot buttons about what's really important to them. And that's one of the things, you know, by the way, that Zoe, the, the hero of our book, um, you know, ex- gets into in the story because you got to know what matters to you. And, uh, but anyway, I, I interrupted you. No, 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 no. I'm no, I could go on, but we won't because you mentioned Zoe, the heroine, I believe of the book or the, yeah. I guess it would be the heroine. Let's talk about Zoe and how she gets into sort of the condition she's in and then meets the the mentor, the hero of the book. I'll call him the hero, Henry. Um, Talk about that. And it starts out with an image in a window. I mean, that's it's a great hook. And I mean that in the best of ways. It's an amazing. Yeah. Yeah, so Zoe Daniels, 28 years old, and you know, uh, young woman, professional, working and living in New York City, actually working in New York City, living in, in Brooklyn nearby, and has a pretty decent job, pretty decent salary, not enormous, but still struggling. You know, student loan debt, credit card debt, you know, a high cost of living, struggling every month to, to make it. She's really hustling, taking work home on the weekends, taking work home at nights, and kind of running her own version of the rat race. Most of us aren't 28-year-old women named Zoe. I know I'm not. I'm sure you're not. But there's things about Zoe's life that I, I think everybody can relate to. Now, David really wanted to aim this book, particularly at, at people 30 and under, and particularly at women. Uh, which he's only, has always been his primary audience. But, you know, we were writing it, and I said, this book is just as much for baby boomers uh, or, or any generation, and it, and it really is. So, so here's Zoe. She goes to work one morning, and she walks by a coffee shop every day on the way to work, and she sees this picture in the coffee shop, and it's an image that she can't get out of her mind, as you say. It's a picture. I don't want to give too much away in the story, but it's this picture of this beautiful, in the island of Mykonos in Greece, this dawn dockside f- photo of the, the, the town of Mykonos in the background of this, this ship in the foreground. And she can almost smell the salt air. She can almost hear the seagulls. She can almost feel the rock of the boat and hear the creaking of ropes. By the way, this is, this is a scene from my, from my life. Um, uh, I spent some time in Mykonos. And this is when I tried to think of an evocative scene, that's what came up. She wants this picture. And she knows that she can't afford it. And there's something about it that rankles her, that just gnaws at her. And she's going to work. She walks by the 9-11 Memorial, which, by the way, is where David walks every, every day on the way to his, his own little mm-hmm. private office. So we took it right out of his life. Um, she walks by the 9-11 Memorial, and she thinks about these thousands of people who died. And she's just thinking about kind of life and death. And she's like, where am I going with my life? As she's walking underground through this big passageway, the largest LCD screen in the world uh, is underground in that, in that tunnel. And it usually shows all kinds of ads. And as she's walking by, it shows this picture of a boat beached on its side in the middle of a desert, kind of like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. scene. <laughs> and, there's, and there's a caption that says, if you don't know where you're going, you might not like where you end up. And, and, and that, again, gnaws at her. And she sits there just not quite knowing what's wrong. And part of the journey of the book is understanding the disquiet that she has. And this, the disquiet she has exists on multiple levels, which I think is, is true for all of us, because there's multiple levels of things that she wants. She wants to own that picture, that, 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 port, that, uh, that photograph. 
She wants to put it on her living room wall. But more than that, she wants to be a photographer. She wants to travel. She's an editor for a travel magazine, and she's never been west of the Mississippi. She's never been outside mm. the U.S. She wants to be a photographer. She wants to travel. She wants to be at that scene. She wants to be on that boat. She wants to know where she's going, and she wants to feel like she can get there. And so at the moment, she's kind of like a, a boat adrift. And she doesn't put that in those words. But that's, that's where she is in her rat race. And in the course of the story, she meets... Uh, and by the way, she's someone who considers herself not good with money. And part of the big breakthrough in the story, again, not to give too much away, is one of her mentors, she has really several in the book, um, finally kind of hits over the head with this reality that there's this idea, this myth that you have to be, quote, good with money to become financially secure. And, and you don't. You know, money is not complicated. Money is not magical. Money is actually pretty simple, but there's these couple of fundamental basic kind of laws to money that most people, when they hear it, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense, but they don't really know them because they don't do them. They don't really get them. And that's, that's the three, the three uh, the principles that David wants to get through in this book. And I, honestly, Richard, I'll tell you, I got them in the course of writing the book. I mean, this book had a huge impact on me in the process of writing it. We our lives financially very differently than we did two years ago. Huh. So wow. that's the story of Zoe. And, and uh, as I say, she has several mentors. Um, one of them is this older guy named Henry, about whom I won't say much, but he works at the coffee shop that she likes to, to stop in and get coffee at. Um, there's also her boss at work, Barbara, an older woman who, who, uh, that she's very close to. And she has uh, another friend named Jeffrey, and she has her mom. And various people in the book sort of prod her and nudge her in different directions. But there is a moment in the book, which is quite late in the story, when honestly she hasn't really been getting these principles. She's been listening to them and, hear, and, and understanding them intellectually. But she hasn't really been buying into this idea that she's been learning from Henry. And there comes a moment when someone close to her in her life says something that suddenly makes it very real, very personal uh, to her. And, you know, kind of like that moment where David sat with Paolo Coelho in the coffee shop um, where he suddenly got this message. And I think that that's, um, that's a, it's, it's, an, it's an important thing. The, the, the knowledge, the principles in the book aren't, you know, calculus. They're not uh, rocket science. They're very simple. It's just that most of us have never quite had them said to us in a way where we go, oh, I could do that. I could make that work in my life. And that's, that's the impact that we're starting to see that the book is having for people. Well, and that was the, as I said, you, you carried me in. I knew where we were going from the outset. Not like some play. Sometimes when you go to a play, you go to a play and you know where you're going to go, but you're like, "Oh, what an amazing journey!" And you, with the <laughs> parable skill, drew me in, even though I knew where we were going in terms of talking about finance. And I'm like, "Oh, about finance? Oh no!" <laughs> but yet, still, in the in the style of the story, your writing skills and the there's nothing in here that is, you know, there's no secret like, and here's the secret. 
It's all a magical thing. If you turn three times and click your heels together, you'll be in the magic land. It's all you're, very you're in, invest in this amazing stock that nobody else knows about, or do this very, right, very yes. clever thing with this financial instrument that no one else knows about. Yeah, right. None of that. <laughs> the special code to get into the rich club. No, there's none of that. And that's the amazing yeah. thing is it's really the story about Zoe. And her journey of like beginning to get a, uh, just to figure out the ahas. It's more about ahas than some secret code or special handshake or, oh, it's this guy and he's going to, no, it's just paying attention to yourself. And there is a, I don't think this is giving anything away, is the, uh, well, they're kind of, uh, the paying yourself first, which is analogous mm-hmm. to that great line in the book about, you know, on the airplane, you're told to put on your oxygen mask first versus putting it on your child's face first. You're put it, to put the oxygen mask on your, yourself first. Right. And because if you don't, if you go hypoxic and suddenly pass out, you're going to be useless to everybody. And, <laughs> right. And I think that's such a great thing to like, oh, I have to pay myself first. Oh. So yeah. it's a series of amazing ahas. Really, that yeah. Talk, talk more about yes. that paying yourself first, because that's such a sure. sleeper. That's such a really wow. For me, this goes hand in hand with uh, with the first of three myths. And in the book, Henry tell, or actually not Henry, but somebody tells her about the three myths of money. And one of those is the idea that making more income will make you richer. Making more income make your financial position better. And uh, Richard, I have believed this all my life. My financial strategy, my entire life is that is has been this has been, yes, I'm struggling now. Yes, things are tight. But if I just keep improving my skills and improving my value in the marketplace, I will earn more. And when I earn more, it will be better. <laughs> and I would earn more and it would not be better. <laughs> yeah. And my, my old friend, my friend, David Kruger, uh, uh, a guy who I wrote a book with called The Secret Language of Money. David is, is a, uh, he calls himself a recovering psychiatrist. Now he's an executive coach. And his specialty is, is uh, sort of the stories we tell ourselves. And he loves to talk about stories about money. He has this test he runs with his clients. He says, two questions. The first question is, how much do you earn annually right now? Okay, write that number down. Great. How much would you need to earn annually? And let's just say that the answer to the question is $50,000. Okay, 50000 a year. How much would you need to be earning annually for your life to be comfortably handled? I don't mean you own a yacht, you own an island. I just mean your, life, your current life, but comfortably handled, so you're good. He said, typically, that number will be twice the first number. He said, but here's what happens. So it's, I need hundred grand a year to be comfortable. He said, okay, I've had clients who improve their income to the point where now they're earning a hundred grand a year. Years later, I asked them those questions again, and now what they're earning is a hundred. How much would you need to earn to live your life comfortably? Two hundred. Hmm. The numbers go up; they always go up in pairs, because rising your rising income doesn't change your daily habits. You bring your spending habits, you bring your financial habits with you. And so there's this myth that if I just make a little more, or if I came into a little more, if I won that big contract, if I got that cherry job, if I, heck, won the lottery, it, whatever it is, if I could just do something to increase my income, man, okay, then things would, the, the pressure would be off. It would relax. And for most people, that's flat out not true. You even see people in the, in the 
arenas like national sports, national entertainment, movie stars, pop stars, who earn suddenly huge amounts of money and like lose it all through bad management <laughs> or, or they're declaring bankruptcy 10 years later. These things are real, real things that happen. So uh, Henry says that the, the key to improving your financial situation is not fundamentally to make more income. It's to change what you do with the income that you currently have. And this starts with pay yourself first. Pay yourself first means what most of us do is when we get a, we get a, a paycheck, first it gets peeled off for withholding. So part goes to the government, part goes you know, for income tax, goes for Social Security, blah, 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 for various benefits. Maybe health insurance comes off, whatever. <clears throat> then we get our net paycheck and we peel off a chunk for a mortgage or rent, for our utilities, for our cable, for our TV, for our food, for our car, for all the necessities of living. And at the end of the month, if there's a little bit left over, that's, that's for us. Maybe we'll put that in a savings account or maybe we'll buy ourselves something nice. And there's usually not anything left over. And if there is, we probably don't put it in savings. We probably buy our, some, ourselves something nice because we've been working so hard. We feel that we've earned the real part. <laughs> we, we reward ourselves by pissing yeah. away the last few dollars that we just earned <laughs> on, on dinner out. And so now the next month comes and it's the same thing all over. He says, you got to turn that on your head. He said, um, when the paycheck comes, the very first thing you need to do is carve up before rent, uh, food, before the government, before taxes, before anything, is you peel off a piece for yourself. What does that mean for yourself? Does it mean for yourself so you go out and buy a nice outfit or a meal out or go to on town for a show? No, it means figure out what means most in your life. Figure out what you want, what you truly, genuinely want. I don't just mean today, but in, but in your life, what do you really want? Then, how can you fund that? How do you finance that? Like for, a simple example was Zoe really wanted to take this photography class, but she couldn't afford it because she never had the money. He said, okay, well, if you took X dollars, which I think turned out to be four or five bucks a day or something, and you put that into an account, forget even earning interest, just in an account under your pillow, under your mattress, and you did that every day for a year, at the end of a year, you'd have enough money to buy that course. Okay, so she gets that concept. So the idea of pay yourself first, practically speaking, is with something like a 401k or an IRA, various instruments and vehicles that the government has made available to us, you can take a certain amount out of your paycheck that is not taxed. It's pre-tax, pre-tax income or pre-tax savings. Um, and that can build time to fund your life. Now, whether that means we've always thought about that in terms of, quote, retirement, but for a lot of people, and this has always been true for me, retirement is like an abstraction. My dad never retired, honestly, and it wasn't because he couldn't. It was because he loved what he did. I remember when he, he, was, he had a university position, and I remember when he actually formally, structurally, quote, retired, I remember him saying, oh, thank God, now I can finally uh, get down to work. Because now he was freed of the stuff he had to do for the university, the classes, the this and that. He could get down to writing the books, editing the manuscripts, doing the stuff that he really loved, which he did till the day he died. I never believed in retirement. And for young people, retirement is decades away and like is, is almost a meaningless concept. So David's saying, if you pay yourself first, that 
slice of money daily, that slice of money biweekly, that slice of money you take out first for yourself and put into an account somewhere, that account should be for funding whatever's important to you. It might be, you know, buying a house someday or retiring someday, or it might be a travel account that you use to take a, a, you know, a genuine fabulous trip twice a year like Zoe wanted to take to go to see the Isle of Mykonos. Uh, it might be to buy something for your kids. It might be to fund a, a, uh, uh, a skill that you've always wanted to develop but never had the time or money to, to pour into, whatever it is. But that's the fundamental idea is you're taking your first slice of income. David says, practically speaking, you work an eight-hour day, take at least the first hour of your work, which is 12.5% if you work out the math. It's an hour out of eight hours is 12.5%. Take at least the first 10 or 12% of your income and put that into an account that's funding you, your life. Um, and then, you know, that's get into details of it. But that's, that's the principle of it. Pay yourself first. I think it's the beauty of that, by the way, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. the, I was going to say the beauty of that is that, you know, what David's saying is anybody can start the process, even with tiny amounts of money. If you just start with 1%, anybody can start the process that then compounded over time will make you rich. Not multimillionaire rich, perhaps, but will make you, will fund a rich life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This reminds me of uh, the last time we talked about the book, The Recipe. And in mm-hmm. that book, there was a lot, there was conversation about this thing that chefs know about called mise en place, mm-hmm. which, is the, which is roughly your prep station. You get your station all prepped so that you're ready to go because when you're in the middle of feeding 400 people, um, you don't want to stop and peel garlic. Let's just yeah. say. So the idea of mise en place is it's the foundation of a chef's life because you need your area prepped, ready to go, so that as you're cooking like a maniac, typically, I've never worked in a kitchen that uses tweezers or does any of that like rabbit ears, chives, or any kind of thing. It's about a different thing. It's about quality food, but not with all the presentation. No foam ever. Um, (laughs) And so using the mise en place as a foundation, this seems like very much – you know, pay yourself first is like mise en place. It's a foundation of, so I, so I have that, I have that from having been a chef for a long time, but then I counter in my own mind thinking, okay, the last restaurant I worked in when I was making about a little over 80,000 a year, which sounds like good money. And 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. that was like amazing money. However, Mm -hmm. I, the agreement that I had was that I worked six days a week, and I worked between 12 and 14 hours every day. So that on that one day off, the money that I had was flying out the window because I had to reward <laughs> myself for the punishment of working like that. And I loved what <laughs> yeah. I did. I still love cooking. Yeah. If I won the lottery tomorrow, if I played, that would be easy to win. Um, yes. You know, that I would buy a catering truck and go out and make great yeah. food because I, do, I really do like to cook. I enjoy it. However, it's not practical. So that, that part of having had good chunks of money coming in, but never had any of this foundational mise en place in my own life of, oh, pay yourself first. Put some of that away. Uh, well, nothing. I got you nothing. Know, the mise en place, I'm sorry, I didn't even brought that up. You know, 
no no other uh, show host brought that up, but I love that because that's you know mise en place also really beautifully explains or gets to the the, the second principle in the book, and the the first is pay yourself first, the second has to do with budgets and keeping a budget, and when she gets to that point in the in the, in the story, she's like, oh god. We're going to have the budget conversation. Zoe hates budgets. She hates the idea of budgets. So she's like, okay, great. Here we go. And then he says, okay, the first thing you need to know about budgets is throw them in the trash. They're crap. They don't work. And she's like, what? (laughs) Uh, And and, and David is passionate about that. He says, practically speaking, for most people, yes, there's this minority. There are the unicorns for whom budgets are are a joy and uh, and a, a thing to behold. For most of us, budgets don't work. And so if you're going to have to lay out a budget and use that to, uh, to dictate financial life, then you're doomed to fail. And David doesn't say this, but, but the way I'd say it is that the, you know, the operating principle of budget is the word don't. You know, you can't spend more than this on that. You can't spend more than this on that. You can only spend this on that. So it's basically all about limitation. And the human mind doesn't like to go there. That's why diets typically don't work, other than that they're foolishly based. But so his his point is throw budgets out, forget about it, don't even try. Instead, make the process automatic. Set the process up that pay yourself first so that it's automatic. And there are there are ways, particularly these days, when all of our bank accounts, you can access them online, you can do things with your little laptop or your phone. There are ways to set it up so that every time your paycheck hits, boom, automatically, a certain percentage that you can dictate ahead of time peels out and goes to this account. You can peel out multiple amounts to go to multiple accounts if you want to fund different things. Make, make, put all your bills to be paid automatically. So instead of paying your credit card a few days late because you forgot and now you just racked up interest charges that are taking away from your life, it's all paid on time because it's all automatic. This is financial mise en place. It's like set your financial life up so that the fundamental, the key important things, the critical things all happen automatically and you don't have to think about it. Because if you have to think about it, it won't work. It's not willpower. It's that none of us have the willpower to make that work month after month after month after month for years on end. So make it automatic principle. It's why his bestseller book was called The Automatic Millionaire. You know, his basic thesis was, I will show you a few, few things to set automatically. If you set those things up, you'll end up a millionaire in, in, in time. Uh, and that's, you know, I, I've never seen anybody else apply the word mise en place to that. You just did, and that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's an odd mix. <laughs> I too you, have a mixed up background. Up for success. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Exactly. Just set yourself up for success. And I, I love this concept I can't remember if I heard it in the book or read it in the book. Um, how you live is more important than how much you make. And yeah. I think that's such a thing that we, every, uh, at least in, in my, we're in a similar uh, yeah. generation. I'm slightly older, but similar. That really that's what you're kind of, as, as a young person, you're taught, you know, to go out and be successful. And to be successful means making a boatload of money. And that that's the solution to everything. If you make a boatload of money, everything will be great. You'll have a great life if you make a boatload of money. It's never about how you live is more important than how much you make. And I think that's such a great part of the book. 
treacherous thing too, potentially, because the, Hollywood has, alas, has oversimplified that to translate as people. But uh, what Hollywood says to us, and this is not every single movie ever made, but it is most of them. What Hollywood says is the real truth is if you make a lot of money, you're a jerk. And if you if uh, the people who are really happy in this world are the starring artists. That's basically the theme of an awful lot of movies out of Hollywood. <laughs> I mean, you look at great example is the movie Titanic. The basic theme of, of the Titanic is rich people are jerks and poor people uh, are have passion and love and meaning in their life. And so if you get a diamond, throw it away. <laughs> and, and what you're saying is so critical and it's so true. It's more about how you live than, than how much you make. But that doesn't mean making less is good and making more is bad. What it means is it doesn't matter how much you make. It's how you treat what you make, how you work with the income you have at any level. And what's, what really matters is what are you doing with your life? You know, there, there's this subtitle of the book at the start of the show, which is why you don't have, why you don't have to be rich to live rich. And that has a couple of layers of meaning to it. One layer of meaning is independent of your, of your bank account, of, of what your net, net worth is and how much money you're, you're making. What is your day-to-day life? Are you doing the things that fulfill you richly, that fulfill you deeply? You know, Zoe discovers something, not only just the travel to Mykonos and so forth and the photographs, but discovers something else about her life that, that, that she had been not noticing that mattered to her a lot, that she started pouring energy into at the end. Uh, but, you know, discovering what's most meaningful and most rich in our lives and making sure to invest in that, that's the secret to a, to a life richly lived, independent of finances. But there's another level to that, that uh, subtitle of the book, Why You Don't Have to Be Rich to Live Rich, which is roughly translated, crudely translated, why you don't have to be enormously filthy rich to live financially richly. You know, why you don't have to be a multimillionaire or you don't have to have an enormous income to still wind up financially independent. There was this book called The Millionaire Next Door in the 1990s. Um, David didn't write it, but it's very similar to his work. And the basic thesis of the book was, if you look around America, most of the millionaires in America don't look rich. They don't look like what you think of as a millionaire. They look like the person next door. In fact, they might be the person next door. Most people, and by most, they mean over 50%. Most people who are really financially well off, by, measured by their bank accounts, live like, uh, uh, like um, uh, you know, the guy. Uh, um, Warren Buffett. Thank you. Thank you. I kept thinking of Walton. Yeah, Warren Buffett. Live like Warren Buffett. They're driving a pickup, not a Maserati. Um, they, they live a life that, that to sometimes looks simple, but investing their time and their effort and their energy into the things that are richly meaningful in their lives. Um, so, yeah, why you don't have to be rich to live rich, both means living richly and also creating financial independence, creating a life of financial security and freedom for yourself. So you can put more and more of your time into those things that are most meaningful. I don't know why this uh, in uh, four, mostly four restaurants that I was chefing in down through the years, 
I and I don't know why this is more true of food servers than chefs. Uh, but I knew an, I know a number of food servers, meaning waiters or waitresses, wait people, wait staff, wait persons. Pick one wait. <laughs> that had in their makeup the intelligence to save their money and hmm. buy a home partially either as an investment to then rent out or to have. And so I know a number of food servers who have done that down through the years where they, and you think this person's a waiter, how are they doing this? And then you find out yeah. that they're, they're kind of doing the Warren Buffett thing. They're not driving swanky cars. They drive yeah. the Toyota Camry, you know, a good car, but nothing ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and, and they work hard and they save their money and they take that money and eventually have enough money to put it down in a house and they may not live in it. It may just be a rental and eventually it's just a, it's a retirement plan and they don't even know they're doing it. It's just they came wired that way. And as I say, mm-hmm. I know more food servers who did that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because chefs get to this. I don't know. You get into sort of a you work so hard, you think because chefs work Long, much longer hours than the servers. The servers kind of come in before, you know, food is already done. You've already been there for six hours by the time the food service starts showing up. Right, right. So, so they come in and they work hard and they make good money, but they don't make as much money. Tipping. Well, actually, oftentimes they make more money than the chefs because they get mm. tips. But, I mean, they were smart enough to – I can think of four people now that I know that own homes. Meanwhile, chefs are still trying to work for a living, and you can only work so long as a chef right. because it's really physically hard. Yeah. Um, so it's an amazing thing to see that, uh, to see exactly that living rich now doesn't look like it's all shiny. It just is – I'm living a good life. I'm working hard, and yet I have a house for my grandparents to live in. It's amazing. It is amazing, and I think. And there's one more like ingredient there, element that I think we, we owe, owe our listeners to touch on in, in this, and that's you know the meaning of the title, the latte factor. So it, you know, part of this is there's always talking to Henry, and and he's saying if you just put aside this you know this amount of your of your check every day, you could do that. And what what's nagging at her? through it all is, yeah, you could say I put aside this amount in an account, but I need it to on. I need everything I make. I, I'm spending, I, I'm already stretched to the edge. How, where is that supposed to come from? Where is that extra money come from that I'm supposed to be squirreling, in a, squirreling away in this account to fund my trips or my whatever? And that's, you know, that's where he gets in. Um, he, he, in the example of the book, he nods at the at the takeout latte that's in her hand and says, "How much you spend on that?" And it was like four fifty, I think. And he comes to the math of if she made that latte at home and brought it with her before, instead of stopping at the coffee shop and made it for you know pennies rather than four fifty, and instead that four fifty was diverted into an account, what it would do at the end of the year is pay for blah blah blah. It turns out it would pay for the photograph, and he has it down and actually write it up, make a list of all the little expenditures that she makes every day. Um, not, a, not counting things that are, that are essential, like her, her subway. She's got to do that. But things that are optional. And for example, the lunch that she buys out every day, which she could theoretically, I'm not saying she should, but theoretically she could make herself a sandwich and bring it or make herself something and bring it. Coffee, she could make at the office, in the office kitchen, rather than going downstairs to the Starbucks and buying it. The bottled water, the this, the that. And 
he says, you start adding those things up, look how much you got here. And it, it turns out to be over the course of decades, put in, a, in an interest-bearing account, it turns out to be a fortune. It turns out to be over a million dollars. It's just, it's enormous. And the point is, and this is, this is so funny, we're actually right now you can go online and see int- otherwise intelligent reviewers jumping up and down and screaming and shouting and getting red in the face about how David's all full of crap and he's in there saying, you should drink your latte, don't listen to him. It's not about latte. It's not about coffee. It's not about what specific uh, expenses you, you, you choose to, to have as luxuries and which ones you don't. It's about understanding that there are things that we spend money on that are optional, that we could choose not to if we made the conscious choice. I, earlier, I mentioned the business of paying your credit card uh, you know, a couple of days late. When I started looking at the amount I was paying every month in interest on my various revolving accounts, it just it staggered my mind. Um, it, it, your latte account might be cigarettes. It might be drinks at the end of the week with friends. It might be for Anna and me, it was eating out. We were eating out a lot, and we were doing it for a few reasons. When we were first courting, we ate out at restaurants a lot. It holds memories for us. And we love to eat. We love good food. We love to cook. Well, guess what? We also discovered we love to cook <laughs> and together at home. And uh, we just started cooking at home a whole more, eating out a whole lot less, enjoying it more, probably being healthier as a result of it, and finding an excess ton of available cash that we could put into investments rather than putting into our local restaurants. Um, everybody has different latte factors. That was our latte fact. It could be, as I say, it could be smokes. It could be cable channels you never watch. It could be clothes you never wear. It could be the extra car you don't need. It could be there's so many uh, frills in our lives, even those of us on very limited budgets. When you really examine it, you find there are always options. Obviously, this isn't true for, you know, for people at the very poorest spectrum struggling but you know it's it's there's still an enormous middle class in this society and those options are there for everybody so that's the latte factor and again zoe looks at this and says oh god you mean i got to start paying attention to every every dollar i spend and he says no 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 no. it's not about budgeting remember budgets don't work budgets are garbage throw them in the trash it's not about budgeting it's just about taking an assessment of where you're actually spending your and then making some conscious decisions. I like this luxury. Fine, I'll keep doing it. This luxury, you know what? I enjoy it, but I could just as easily do without that and instead divert. It's not about denial. It's about diverting that flow of money to a different place that's funding my future, funding my passion. I think of it as the bathtub idea, which is financially we're pouring money into a bathtub every month, but there are also leaks in the tub. So as we pour in, in, pour in water, it's leaking out, and at the end of the month, the bathtub's empty. You go like, wait a minute. Why is the bathtub empty? Because it's got leaks. <laughs> the latte factor is about finding the leaks that you want to plug and diverting that flow into, into places that will fund your life passion. Mm-hmm. Please put on your oxygen bath first. it's really that or you will be no good to anybody (laughs) exactly that's so good uh i'm surprised to find we're at the the, at the point where i ask you where would you like 
people to find the latte factor, why you don't have to be rich to live rich, and uh, where can they find out more information about you, John David Mann? Well, the book itself is available wherever fine books are sold or even mediocre books are sold. It's on Amazon, Barnes <laughs> Noble, it's on the independent shops, it's, it's everywhere. Um, it's, I'm thrilled to say it's been on the, New York, uh, the, uh, the Wall Street Journal list, it's been on the USA Today bestseller list, it's been on the LA Times list, the Publishers Weekly. It's been on a whole bunch of bestseller lists. It, so it's, it's very much in circulation right now. A lot of people are reading it and getting benefit from it, and it's, it's, it's pretty darn exciting. Um, you can buy it anywhere. And you can also find it on my site. We can find all my books, uh, information about them, sample chapters, excerpts, links to purchase. Uh, don't, you know, they just take you to Amazon or Barnes or wherever. And uh, you can learn more about me and what I do in my, in my site is just my name, John David Mann, two N's, dot com. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I'll stop now because there's so many things rolling around in my head, but I'll stop now because we're at that time. Um, everybody have, that was really fun. That was a zesty adventure. Thank you, John. Um, everybody it's have a great pleasure. Thank you. Uh, everybody have a great rest of the weekend and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.